Welcome to the Old Galway Diary Podcast. Each week, Tom Kenny and I, Ronnie O'Gorman, write a column in the Galway Advertiser. Before it goes to press, we contact each other and share what is filling the page that particular week. This podcast is that conversation. And I would add, we enjoy talking to you and would appreciate if you would give us a rate and review on the Apple Podcast app. Tom, good morning. Hello, Ronnie. How are you, Tom? Tom, the Queen is dead. Long live the King. Well, indeed, yes. I I have to say I wouldn't be a royalist, but uh, I thought that was a wonderful lady and uh, hugely representative of her nation and a person of peace as well, you know. Uh, Very accomplished politician. Uh, But anyway... She has yes. gone now, so it's a new era, and there always has to be change, I suppose. Yes, but I do feel the Windsors have shown quite a lot of respect for Ireland in the past. Her grandfather, now George V, in June 1921, he appealed to, to all Irishmen, Tom, to, to, to stretch out the hand of forbearance and, and to forgive and forget, if that was possible. But, you know, he was very influential. He said, look, this is a, a land you all love. And he, he asked that a new era of peace and goodwill should, should be embraced. But that effectively stopped the War of Independence. And no one was more relieved than Michael Collins because he was coming to the end of his ammunition and he was coming to the end of his tether and people were beginning to fret and, uh, you know, get very nervous about the British reaction. And uh, so Collins was very pleased when those words were said. And then then the Queen herself, when she was here in that famous visit with Michael D, and she really was wonderful, the Garden of Remembrance speaking a couple of words in Irish. And I know that sounds very small, but they were quite significant, I thought. Oh, very, very significant. I mean, you said she was a good politician. She certainly was, you know. She she weighed her words carefully, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So the turnout is extraordinary. Um, I was just listening to the news this morning, and they were saying, you know, people are going to queue for maybe two days and two nights in London to see the cortege. Imagine that. It is. I agree. It's wonderful, really. It's wonderful. But as some lady said on the news, she was everybody's nan. And I think that's, (laughs) they regarded her as a kind of a a granny, a family member, a lot of English people. And uh, so... And when so you it's think, very nice that all of this affection is being shown to her. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, it's a good it's a good quality to show, and not to yeah. be ashamed of it. Um, yes, she she used a phrase of uh, taken from De Lapidusa's "The Leopard," uh, or at least one of the newspapers did. She, you see, she lived in a time of enormous change, but she appeared to remain the same. And in Giuseppe de Lampedusa's book, the prince says that uh, in order for things to change, everything must remain the same. And the London Times, I think, adapted that by saying she remained the same 
while everything changed. She, she gave a kind of a, you know, a, a solid presence that things are actually the same. But she was changing yeah. too. But the impression was she remained the same. And I yeah. thought it was a brilliant summary, you know. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Well, anyway, Tom, we will watch the funeral uh, with interest and say, you know, leave it at there. How are we fixed for this week, Tom? How are you? What are you doing for us? Well, we have a lot of talk about hospitals and HSC and pandemics yeah, and diseases. Do. Yeah. So I thought to write a little bit about <clears throat> a major attack on a disease in this country almost 100 years ago. And that, of course, was TB, tuberculosis, yeah. which was a very, very infectious and debilitating disease of the lungs. And it killed a lot of people, devastated a lot of families. It was known as consumption simply because people lost weight, shed weight. And uh, it's a kind of a sickening kind of a title, really. But anyway, they began to plan in the 1940s. Uh, to fight this disease. And their plan, the government plan, was to build sanatoria in various parts of the country. <clears throat> and this is before they had any of the drugs uh, like streptomycin, etc., that they now use, of course, to yes. defeat this. Uh, Indeed. So they first, one of the first things they did was they passed a government act that enabled the Department of Health to buy land compulsory or compulsorily uh, and property that might have been suitable for such hospitals. And the original site they had in mind in Galway <clears throat> was the property of Colonel Joyce in Merview. That's right. Uh, he and his wife, they actually came to an arrangement with the department. Uh, they were going to sell their eight acres uh, and plans were all drawn up there for a 40-bedded unit or maybe multiples thereof. But unfortunately, <clears throat> the Redemptorists, whose house of studies was next door, literally, they objected, and so the search began for another uh, property. Captain Wyndham Waitman and his wife Eileen, <clears throat> uh, they lived in Merlin Park House. And uh, sometime in 1945, Four gentlemen arrived unannounced at their door. They informed them that they were looking for a site uh, as close as possible to the hospital and to the university in Galway for uh, a new sanatorium and that they had the power to purchase this compulsorily if the Waitmans did not agree. Well, they certainly weren't impressed. I wouldn't be no, impressed no, if four guys walked in and said, yeah. we're taking over your house anyway. <clears throat> Uh, but they eventually, they became a bit resigned to the whole idea, unfortunately. Uh, they, they felt, you know, maybe it was a civic duty of theirs to uh, cooperate with the department. And one day then, uh, a very large official-looking envelope arrived in their letterbox, and Eileen Waitman watched as her husband opened it and read the contents. And she described two big tears rolling down his face Poor as he Captain. looked at her. Yes. And he said, well, if we can only save one life, who are we to object? And so they very graciously moved out. And uh, the plans to begin 
<coughs> I beg your pardon, to build the Galway Regional Sanatorium, which is how it was known, Merlin Park Hospital, as we would know it today. Uh, the plans were drawn up. It was one of the very biggest uh, contracts ever placed in the country. Uh, the initial development, like the roads, the water, the sewer mains, the heating ducts, all of that, that cost almost a million pounds. And that's before they started building the hospital at all. Anyway, John Sisk was the contractor. The, in 1950, Bishop Brown blessed the site and the Minister for Health, Dr. Noel Brown, laid the foundation stone and work began. Now, I think, looking back, it must have been an interesting meeting between the two Browns. It may have been the only <laughs> time they ever actually spoke. I don't yeah. know, uh, because unfortunately, uh, and sadly for all of us, really, they were to part their ways. But the building began anyway, and within two years, four units were already built, 160 beds, uh, and these were <clears throat> now available for pulmonary tuberculosis patients. And they were taken from Woodlands, which is on the Renmore Road there. Yes. Uh, and it was the Order of Malta, the local Order of Malta, who organized all of the transfer of these patients. By the following year, six ward blocks were occupied, and uh, there were even more uh, TB cases coming in there. And uh, at this stage, they decided to convert woodlands for, it's, I'm not quite sure the difference myself, but it was for the treatment of tubercular orthopedic cases from the Western region. And when in uh, 1954, the Merlin Park was finished, the building, there were now 550 beds available. Interestingly, of course, new drugs had arrived on the scene and they had dramatically shortened the length of time that patients had to spend in hospital. Uh, and so it, it was a kind of an anomaly in a sense that when they actually opened, there were already some empty beds in the wards. But in fact, they they later added on to more units onto Merlin Park. So this meant that um, <clears throat> the fact that they now had empty beds, uh, mm -hmm. it meant that some of the units could be adapted for other purposes. So there was a cardiothoracic surgery unit, orthopedics, uh, later uh, geriatric patients were brought in there from St. Brendan's home in Loch Ray. So it was Noel Brown who led the fight against TB. He had a terrible history in TB. He lost both of his parents. That's right. For, for the disease. And of their seven children, six got TB. Noel was the only one who made it into adulthood. He became a doctor uh, and he made a very curious decision then. He decided that, like his lifelong. <clears throat> ambition was to fight tuberculosis. But the decision he made was that he would be more efficient if he went into politics than rather into medicine. And as it happened on the day that he was elected to the Dáil, he became the Minister for Health. And he immediately set about really attacking this disease. Uh, and he succeeded in a remarkable way, uh, incredibly efficient. And the whole country is still in his debt, really. 
his downfall as a minister came, unfortunately, when he introduced what was called the mother and child scheme in the Dáil. What, what this would have meant was state-funded health care for all mothers and children under 16. But this was absolutely opposed by the bishops. They called it socialized medicine. Now, I don't know what that means. No, imagine. But a load of nonsense. And the other serious opposition came from doctors because they thought it was going to upset their kind of fee-for-service model on which their income depended. And so he was forced to resign as minister. But I think he'll always be remembered uh, as the man who successfully wiped out most of the TB in this country. And so I have a photograph that was taken in 1953 by Captain Morgan. He was a pilot who flew around the country taking quite a lot of photographs. And it's of the building of Merlin Park Hospital. Uh, It's still, the building is actually still in process. But what's also very interesting about this photograph is the surrounding hinterland. You can see Roscam and Renmore all the way down to Lakatalia. But there are no buildings there. Oh, my it's goodness. all green yeah. fields. Oh, and this goodness. is 1953. Right. So the photograph is of great interest because yes, of the Merlin Park yeah. complex, but also because of... What uh, the, how the land has changed, really. It was around. out in the country. It was out in the country. Yeah, it was. And it's all covered in estates yeah. and concrete now. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. That's a brilliant photograph. Um, it is, actually. Yeah. 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 So, Tom, we've talked before about TB, the terrible scourge that it was. And um, Brown, of course, was w- 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 played a, a pivotal role in, in its. He was lucky general, though. Napoleon always looked for lucky generals when he's going down through the list of people to be promoted to generals, especially before he invaded Russia. And he'd have his team around him. He'd see a name and he said, this man got highly qualified. And they'd say, yes, he's a very good man. But Napoleon always asked, but is he lucky? Is he lucky? This is Napoleon believed in a battle that sometimes luck played a great role in giving somebody an advantage, which they took full advantage of, if you know what I mean. But he was lucky in the sense that streptomycin was developed around this time in the 1940s. I mean, that that was really the the drug that changed TB, thank God. Yeah, but he had a charisma as well. And I remember speaking to an old man who was a patient in um, Merlin, one of the first. And he recalled Noel Brown coming in to the ward with a basket of oranges. This man didn't know what an orange was. He had never seen one. But Noel came over to him. He gave him an orange. He explained to him what it was. He had a good long chat with him. And uh, when your man eventually eat and tasted the orange and experienced the orange for the first time in his life. Yeah. He, he talked about, he wasn't cured, but boy, he felt an awful lot better oh, after meeting Noel Brown and being presented with this that's lovely. fruit. Yeah. yeah. 
I think one of the big things Noel Brown did was to focus attention on TB at last. You know, the hospitals, as you said, sprung up around the country. So there was a big emphasis, political emphasis, physical emphasis. You know, the hospital became a kind of a center in the community where at last help was available. Until then, Tom, there was very little that could be done. And because it was such an infectious disease, some families hid the fact that one or two members might have had TB. You know, they were kind of embarrassed to come out and say it. So, you know, he brought it out onto the open. He made it a center of of Irish politics. And yeah, you know, it it, it really succeeded. And De Valera, who was the uh, Taoiseach at the time, you know, thought Noel Brown was great. That didn't last, mind you. (laughs) No, no. But but for that campaign, certainly Noel Brown was a champion. Absolutely wonderful. Oh, oh, without question. Yeah. Yeah. Just one other little remark about Colonel Joyce in Merview. Now, I've read and I know Colonel Joyce in Merview was a very interesting man. Uh, he fought in the desert. Uh, he was T.E. Lawrence's commanding officer, believe it or not. Yeah. And um, the two of them got on extremely well. Uh, Lawrence uh, pays great respect to him in Seven Pillars of Wisdom, his great book on the desert war. And... Um, <laughs> Um, um, what do you call him? Um, Joyce uh, appreciated Lawrence enormously and, and recognized the great role he was playing. He was a lucky general, by the way. <laughs> but yeah. uh, he sent to London for a Rolls Royce, a yellow Rolls Royce, which he gave to Lawrence. And Lawrence was delighted. And Lawrence would drive around the sand dunes at great speed. He was a man who loved speed. But what a brilliant thing to give him. The one thing that Lawrence, he might have looked for weaponry, he might have looked for yeah, I know, you know, yeah. to help the Arab struggle, <laughs> yeah. but he got a, this wonderful car, which he enjoyed immensely. So <laughs> that's great. So that was an interesting man, Joyce, uh, there. And it's a great story, Tom. It's a great story, yeah. the whole battle of TB, and it was fought on the front line here in Galway. Great yes. story. Yeah, exactly. It was, yeah. Well, listen, I am... Still on about Mitchell Henry, who enters Parliament on behalf of Galway in 1871. And um, I can't help um, kind of equating uh, Henry with a film I've really loved, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington by Frank Kappa, the great director, uh, where a naive and idealistic young man has plans to change America. And Mitchell Henry, who was a liberal kindly man he had plans to voice you know to be a voice for the, on behalf of the irish tenant farmer and which he believed uh, would benefit from a, a paternalistic uh, landlord system and uh, he walked into a political cauldron with those simple beliefs i can tell you because politics sure did yeah. Politics had changed. It would never be the same. A lot of historians look look upon our modern Ireland now as before the famine and after the famine. This was after the famine. And really, parts of the country, especially the West, was absolutely devastated. And I'm yeah. using a quote which I've used before just to convey that. There was a very interesting thing when the um, the whole... Uh, Balnehinch estate, the whole Martin estate at Balnehinch, which was almost 200,000 acres, was put up for sale because it went bankrupt. Uh, 
a group of businessmen sent a very intelligent young man, Thomas Colville Scott, to come over to the west of Ireland to travel around the estate and tell them what did they think the value, what was its potential for fishing, for tourism, hotels, come back and give them an honest appraisal. And uh, Colville Scott, in fairness, was an average Briton. And he came to Ireland with the with the prejudices that most Britons had about Ireland at the time, sadly yeah. some believed that the famine was a result of the Irish laziness, something that they were brought upon themselves because of their inability to farm properly and to provide for bad times. But anyway, Colbert Scott came over, and I've used this quote before because it really is extraordinary. He came over in February 1853, very, very cold February, snow on the ground. But one day, anyway, he was exploring a remote part of the estate from which hundreds of poor tenants had been driven off by a combination of soldiers, revenue officers and the constabulary. Colville Scott writes, there were still hordes of squatters, however, and unrecognised sub-tenants who paid to the middlemen double of what was the going rate just to remain on the land because they had nowhere to go. I saw a number of these subtenants at work, he said. Most of them were widows, forsaken wives and young women carrying peat on their backs. They were nearly in a state of nudity and appeared from actual want to be reduced to a state of idiocy. There was no Irish animation here, but a stealthy and timid look, as if the poor souls were ashamed of their condition and lost the faintest hope of escape from the wretchedness and misery around them. Good God, he says in his, in his report, where are the landlords and those in responsible power who rules over them? Have they never looked into these but vacant faces, only animated by the faint imploring look? Have they ever seen the bent back of the aged and the sunk cheek of the young let them come here and see what neglect has done. <laughs> of course, yeah. it goes on. As I say, he was an average, sensible Briton looking yeah. at what he saw in front of him and writing honestly. Needless to say, the group of businessmen didn't invest in the Martin estate. Yeah. But the famine, Tom, is what I'm trying to get at, had brought a new reality to Irish politics. And the belief that only flint-sharp leadership and mass protest and ruthless discipline could affect change. Now, the Land League, the Great Land League, established in Castle Bar in October 1879, quickly began to show its teeth. It urged tenants in certain ages not to pay exorbitant rents. If they were evicted, the League would provide for them. Landlords, and in some cases, even a tenant, farmer, shopkeeper or publican, if they refused to obey the dictates of the League, were ostracized by the community. Membership of the League grew rapidly. In places, more ruthless methods were used, such as the maiming of landlords' cattle, releasing their animals onto the roads, burning the landlords' barns, and in extreme cases, landlords and their agents were being shot dead. So I'm saying it was into this atmosphere that poor Mitchell Henry came with hope in his heart and huge ambition and to promote the paternalistic landlord who cared for his tenants and that together they would achieve home rule. 
Well, of course, the poor man became isolated in the House of Commons uh, because the Irish party grew and grew. And don't forget, now we had Parnell. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Parnell, who, d- who may not have a- approved of the extreme land league uh, methods, but he was steadfast in his goal for rule. And he became uh, president of the Irish Land League. And he, a Protestant landlord himself from Wicklow, but nevertheless, his his hearts were d- deeply embedded in the struggle of the tenant farmer. One of his ploys was to use obstructionism, preventing bills being passed in the House of Commons until home rule was granted. Irish MPs talked for as long as they wished on any subject, which caused havoc in Parliament. One member spoke nonstop for 45 hours, so no other legislation was allowed to be passed. Now, Mitchell Henry, really, he could not support these methods used by Parnell. And he wrote and he appeared before the guardians in Gledamaddy. And I have a quote from him here. And it about sums up this kindly man, probably totally out of place in politics at this time. But here's what he said. I solemnly declare my conviction that if ordinary common sense had been used in Parliament and if the policy of Mr. Butt had been followed, That is to convince by argument and not to attempt to exasperate for the sake of exasperation. Not only would the land bill have been passed long before it was passed, but there would have been no coercion. All sympathy for the country has been destroyed in England and the reputation of Irish people as a God-fearing, honest and gallant race has been rudely shaken in the eyes of the world. And so he goes on and the falling out between himself and Parnell. Well, Parnell really didn't bother with him because Parnell had, he believed right on his side and gradually would make deals with Gladstone, the British, great British prime minister and the various land acts, which I talked about in previous months. Yeah. Began, became into being. But to go back to Mitchell Henry, because I'm not letting him go for a week or two because he's a very interesting man. The biggest blow that the poor man suffered at this time was not politics, but the death of his beloved wife, Margaret. Now, just a few years after he completed Kyle Moore, he had taken her and six of his nine children on a holiday to Egypt, where she was struck down by fever. After two weeks suffering, and despite the best medical attention, she died. Henry was absolutely heartbroken. He had her body embalmed in Cairo and brought home to Kylemore, Connemara, where she rested in a glass coffin beneath the grand staircase in the front hall. Family and neighbours and tenants would talk about the coming to see the Queen lying in state, but she almost lay in state, poor Margaret. Uh, neighbours and tenants queued to pay their respects as she was placed almost before she was placed in a mausoleum on the grounds which he was building. But for months, she lay in a glass case, Tom, under the stairs. Uh, I know, it really is awful. (laughs) Awful. And despite his grief, you see, Henry was such a a man of principle and and such a man who believed he was doing good and he was elected for, for a purpose. He continued his political life as best he could. 
At, Wins at Westminster, he carried on the argument for home rule while supporting the role of the landlord in Irish society. Henry saw himself as a benevolent landlord, yet he had to defend himself from accusations which were often untrue. But in a society where tenants were totally dependent on their landlord's goodwill, I have noticed, Tom, there was always some general truth in their complaints. And here he hits back the poor man. It is an absolute falsehood to say that I deprived many tenants of seaweed and sand. On the contrary, I made a new road, the better to enable them to obtain seaweed and sand. And I charged nobody for seaweed or for tuberty, as was the case elsewhere. Doubtless there is still much misery in the parts of my estate, but I cannot make people provident all at once, nor can I control the seasons, nor build or improve houses faster than I am doing. And so he goes on protesting the best he could. But he makes one rather, you know, sad speech, really, because he's been accused of all these things because he's a landlord, even though he sees himself as a good landlord. One phrase upon his, among his tenants, he said that he noticed, when the great sorrow fell upon my house, that will never fade from my memory, and has often brought tears to my eyes. For when she, his beloved wife, who was a benefactress and their friend, but not their landlord, was taken away these ill-used tenants said to me, it was not our mistress we have lost, sir, but our mother. And that, you know, oh. wonderful sentiment, Boyd, poor old, um, you know, Mitchell yeah. carry on the best he could. But just, I mean, it, it is really sad because um, he doesn't give up, you see. He does, he still believes that common sense and good argument will win the day uh, for home rule. But that's yeah. not what Parnell and the Irish Parliamentary Party. Just to finish the film, I don't know if you saw that movie uh, about James Stewart stars in it. The, you know, I did. Yeah, I yeah. think it's just wonderful, really. But anyway, he's appointed to the U.S. Senate as a stooge for property wheelers and dealers, played by Claude Rains, a great actor. But he's quickly disillusioned by the corruption he finds. But instead of packing his bags, you see, Mitchell is like this. Instead of packing his bags and heading for home, he is persuaded by the secretary of the, of the Senate to mount an impassioned challenge to the system in the form of, guess what, marathon filibustering or obstructionism, exactly what Parnell was using. I was doing, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Smith must have learned something from Parnell. Yeah. Well, Tom, I'm going to leave it there. Uh, I don't want to read too much because uh, I've, I've written a bit and I'm going to continue the story next week of how uh, Mitchell Henry gets on. Okay. But it, it's, well, we'll look forward to that. It doesn't bode well for him, I must say that, but a kindly no. man. No, no. All right, Tom. On this okay. busy, busy week, we'll say goodbye. Yeah. Until Take next care. week. You yeah. bet. Bye, Tom. Slán, slán. Bye-bye.